The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. I'd like to ask your help. The people in the cheaper seats, clap your hands. <laughs> and the rest of you, if you just rattle your jewellery. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. This is a great day for us here. The Fab Three, anybody that's listened to the show for a while knows that we've always done Beatle-themed podcasts. There's been some great ones. We celebrated the uh, 50th anniversary of the Fab Four coming to America. We did uh, one of my all-time favorite shows where we came up with the Beatles set list had they reunited in an alternate universe, which was amazing. But this is not an alternate universe. This is one of the greatest moments in rock and roll history, the fact that Get Back has now come out. And it's absolutely insane the fact that um, this footage has existed for all of these years and nobody has ever seen it until this past week. That just right off the bat just blows my mind. Yeah, man. It's like they should have done it. Indiana Jones and the, and the Lost Beetle film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this footage, like, I thought I had seen all this footage because I've had the bootlegs of the Let It Be movie and I've had hours and hours of outtakes for years. I think, Chris, if I remember correctly, maybe you, you stayed at my house once. We even watched Let It Be, I think. And we watched we did, these yeah. outtakes. So, I mean, just when you think you'd seen it all and I have like the audio, too. I have like uh, an 18 disc set of uh, the Get Back outtakes on audio, but it didn't even scratch the surface of what was here. I mean, what? The, the amount of stuff that was here was mind-blowing, incredible. Well, and like you said, I think, you know, we're probably three of the few that remember the uh, the late great Ayers uh, bootleg store in Tokyo. Yeah. Where you would just go hang out for hours. And uh, the deal was, and I think this is right, if you went there and, and you could pick out whatever you wanted, because she would basically be, or Junko was her name, she would be selling all of your band's bootlegs. So the trade-off was you could just go in there and take whatever you wanted, right? You go in there, you take a picture and sign an autograph and then help yourself. Right. Yeah. And I remember I said, well, do you have any Beatles stuff? And she's like, yes. And she took me to the back room and it's all Beatles. Yeah. 63 in Sweden and all the stuff that we all have. One of them was Let It Be in the outtakes. And it was about two hours of stuff. 
This was 60 hours of stuff. Yeah. 60 hours of video and I think over 100 hours of, of 150 audio. 150 of audio, yeah. Unbelievable. Incredible. So just as a little bit of a background for people that haven't seen Get Back yet, um, they basically, uh, I think Peter Jackson, you guys can jump in if you've read about this. He asked Apple or somebody, where is all of this footage? Because he'd always heard 60 hours, etc. Where is it? And they went into the vaults and basically found it and, and gave it to Peter to do something with. Is that kind of what you guys have heard as well? Well, I thought Peter was... Wasn't there something what Ron Howard was attached to this too at some point? Well, Ron Howard did that eight days a week documentary years ago. Right. Right. But I didn't know he had any attachment to this. I mean, as you guys know, I've told the story before that the time that I met Paul, this was the question I asked him. I wanted to know what is going on with Let It Be and all that footage. And the bulk of our conversation was about this. And that was about five, maybe five, six years ago, I think. And he said that there's something in the works coming soon. So Obviously, they this has been in the work. Oh, well, we even I mean, Peter Jackson's been working on it for four years. But I, I guess from my conversation with Sir Paul, there was a talk about preparing for a 50th anniversary at some point many, many years before that even uh, started. So Peter gets all of this footage and I'm paraphrasing. You guys can go, you know, you guys listening can go to, you know, variety and read the exact specifics. But basically it took him four years to make this documentary, but a year and a half of that was transposing the film. Uh, and my friend Eli Roth is very much into this because it's not just the movie itself that he is attracted to. I'm going to pull up his text. It's the fact that Peter Jackson had to uh, take all of this footage and basically transpose it to, uh, to 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 be able to make this movie because this movie was filmed on sixteen millimeter 16 film millimeter. that then had to be transferred to thirty four millimeter thirty five millimeter 35. for the big screen. So um, Peter Jackson, this is from Eli Roth, used all the Weta digital technology from his World War One movie. I guess he had just done a World War One movie and the latest AI technology to split the audio. He's a genius. It's really amazing. He used a machine that learned the algorithms to split the tracks so they could remaster the audio and dialogue perfectly. Only he could have done this just to see their creative mind, mind process mind-blowing. So that's more the technical jive from a movie-making standpoint of what he had to do. To talk about that for a moment, there's two levels uh, because there's the audio and the video. The audio footage, he used that technology you're talking about because a lot of that audio was just mono tracks coming off of the cameras. Uh, so they weren't multi-tracking everything. They were literally just catching stuff with single mics. So a lot of the audio is mono stuff. And he was able to put it in this digitize or whatever and separate the, the voices from the guitar because a lot of times somebody would be fitting with the fiddling with the guitar and maybe the conversation got buried so he was able to separate all that but then the other element is the video quality is unbelievable i mean you know th th this footage is over 50 years old and it looks like it was filmed this year you know it's pristine it's clean it's incredible on on, on both levels audio and video is just incredible so and, and like you said that's kind of the background of it so we've been waiting for a while because the three of us have been talking about this because originally it was supposed to be a movie that you would go see in the theater and then at some point just fairly recently we found out he was turning it into basically a three-part eight-hour documentary he had so much footage and i for one is a thank 
thank God they did that. I mean, I can't imagine yeah. just doing this again with all this material and doing and not giving us the full Monty with it again. Thank God for COVID, right? <laughs> I think that's what, that's what delayed it. And I think once they realized they weren't going to make their money back in the theaters, they, they went with this plan. And, and as recently as a month ago, it was only supposed to be six hours. And apparently Peter Jackson snuck in two more hours of footage. Originally, apparently he submitted this extra two hours of footage for a blue for bonus footage on a Blu-ray release and Disney balked at it for whatever reason. So Peter just snuck it back into what he g- gave them to stream. So we ended up getting eight hours, uh, which was a, a last minute surprise, actually. That is awesome. There's some stuff missing, too, by the way, because he didn't show the actual videos of the songs that they actually did there too. let it be right. two of us. You know, that's not in it. Long and winding road. Yeah. You mean actually in the studio that they recorded in yeah. the studio? Yeah. yeah, the Let It Be movie ended with those three songs after the Do, movie those three songs. Oh, yeah. gotcha. We got them on the credit on the closing credits, but they were excerpts. But gotcha. I bet they they put that out on a Blu-ray or something. The versions of those songs, which are great. You know, the the one thing that we have to talk about right off the bat is the rooftop. Let's go backwards. Three of those takes made the record, right? And could you believe that though? The sound. Yeah. On a rooftop. Yes. I was wondering the day before they were set to go up there, how the f- are they going to get the gear up there, line check everything? Like, because when they moved into Apple Studios in between part one and two, there were days of wiring and sound checking and the ne- the sound was never right. And I remember watching this and it was okay the day before they were supposed to go to the rooftop and everything was still in Apple. I'm like, how the fuck are they going to do this? Like technically. And they nailed it. They nailed it. Which... How did they run all the wires? I know. <laughs> I mean, and, and they barely sound checked. They, the roof got, thank God, it's so cool that he included the entire rooftop performance from start to finish. Because I think a lot of people don't realize they did multiple takes of those songs. And even the original Let It Be film ends with them playing Get Back, but it's like take two. Because and then they they lead you to believe that they're playing Get Back and then the cops come and close them down. But the version, <laughs> right. the third version of Get Back, which is what they really ended with is not the version in Let It Be. It's kind of, they took an old, the, the earlier version and kind of changed it around for Let It Be. But this, this way was incredible seeing the whole thing from start to finish. I think Michael Lindsay Hogg, he kind of had to have an ending for Let It Be. And I think a lot of the cop, the police stuff was kind of fabricated, you know, because there's more scenes of cops in Let It Be. Right. Then just just the two or three that showed up. It's amazing that they had the camera in the lobby to watch the whole thing. Like the the police, the cops show up and they think they don't know they're on the roof yet. They think it's just sound coming from the studio for like uh, for about 10, 15 minutes. But man, the look (laughs) on Paul's face when they finally arrive. Yes. He is like he turns around and sees them and he's got this smile like a kid. He's like, here we go, baby. He starts dancing around. He changes the lyrics, doesn't he? He's like, yeah. Jojo got arrested or whatever. He's like, changed. He's super excited. You're right. That's when he's like, yeah. his plan worked because totally. he says earlier how he wanted to be uh, uh, arrested. How cool right. it would be that the cops would come and take them he away. Wanted, he wanted this big finale. At one point, he was talking about maybe doing a newscast where it, there was news. Right things in between songs and then the final news blurb would be okay the Beatles break up so he wanted Paul wanted this big finale and you could see somewhere in part three when they're still trying to figure out where to go where to go somebody I I guess Michael Lindsay suggest oh and okay and they 
And they suggest to him, how about the rooftop? And you can see this look on his face like, oh, yeah. It's like it's in slow motion. And right. you just see his eyes light up like that's the ending that I wanted, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I also, I just before I said that, Charlie, I also love the cops. Somebody made a great analogy. These guys are like Seth Rogen and Bill Hader and Superbad. <laughs> <laughs> They're super friendly. Like, we've yeah. had 30 complaints in a minute. You guys got to keep it down. And the, is, I think her name is Debbie, the secretary, is the best. She's like, I don't know what's going on. You can't go up on the yeah. roof. You only go to the fourth floor. There's nothing going on in here. You haven't yeah. seen anything. Right, standing there. There's this image of the two of them, and they have this strap that goes right around here. (laughs) And they're eating it, and they're playing with it. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. But you could tell that they're they're inside. They love they're they're Beatle fans too, because you know they go up and they're like, "This is cool right now." So I'm going to let them go. And then Mal start shutting the amps off and then yeah, Harrison goes and turns his back on. Right. Yeah. That was this crazy. Is awesome, dude. Well, that's, I guess that's why they didn't use the final get the, so all these years, what we thought the final performance of get back on the rooftop really wasn't the final one until we saw this one, but I guess they obviously couldn't use it because, you know, they were switching off the amps and all that. So like, yeah. I had no idea that they like literally turned up mal turned off the amps and you could, it was just, Surreal. The thing about it, too. Oh, go ahead, Charlie. No, no, no. I was just going to suggest that if each one of us can break down each member of the band during this and you tell me or tell everybody how you felt about how they were during this time, you know, because I have my own views on the four of them around this time. And we may agree on a lot of that, too. You know, the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. We're talking about the Beatles, who are still the biggest band in the world and a phenomenon worldwide. They have three people working for them. Three. Mal Evans, Kevin Harrington, and there's one other cat that... Who's the other ones, Charlie? Derek Taylor. Derek, well, okay. Kind of, but not in the studio. Like, but they're uh, in the studio. Like Neil. No, no, no. I meant... Like Neil. Well, at, my, yeah. Neil Aspinall. Just imagine... You know, who's the biggest band in the world? I know, U2. U2 goes in the studio. There's probably 30 guys to do every single thing they want. They got Mal Evans writing down lyrics. He's playing tambourine. He's bringing them toast. He's, right. he's, he's shucking gear. He's going, he's to get, uh, going to get bow ties for George. Going to get bow ties. <laughs> Dealing with the cops. Yeah. Right. There, yeah. He, Everything. He's like, he's going to call John. He's like, John's on the phone for you. <laughs> oh, I loved I loved that one point when they would get him on the call and they say, they referred to him as, J.H., 
uh, PM, <laughs> RS. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I never heard that, them referred to each other with, by their initials. <laughs> oh, and I, dude, I, I also I love loved that. every time they refer to Ringo as Richie. It was That's I great. love that. Love yeah, that. Yeah. But we're, I mean, there's so much to talk about. We're just jumping around like crazy. Why, why, well, why don't why don't we do what Charlie suggested first and go through the guys in the band? Because like you said, you're right. We could go all over the place, but I think we can take it in chunks because there is so much to talk about. So your idea was to go through each member, Charlie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you start. You go ahead. You start. All right, which guy do you want to start with? Uh, let's start with John. John, Paul, George, and Ringo, let's say. So let's say John, at this moment in time, Hasn't checked out of the Beatles. He loves the Beatles, but yes. he's found this. But he's found Yoko, who he loves probably more. And the way Paul describes John is, you know, he goes over the top. He can't just be right. He's got to go over the top. And the, when I was watching this whole thing, all I kept thinking about was I kept equating it to my band, and I'm sure you guys did the same yes. thing. Yes. And I just thought to myself. Why didn't someone suggest to them or suggest to John, let's take a year off, go enjoy your relationship with Yoko, you know, like almost get that out of your system. Come back when you love the Beatles again and write with your partner who, you know, can I, can I answer that quickly? Yes. And this might open up a whole new discussion, but honestly, we've texted about this. The reason why very simple, they didn't have, the daddy that Paul says they didn't have had Mr. Epstein, by the way, right. three years after he died, he's still Mr. Epstein or two years had Mr. Epstein still been in the picture. The Beatles would not have broken up because you can Correct. see they are having so they, they are brothers, man. They're having yep. fun. All the stereotypes that we've heard about, let it be. We can get into that later. It doesn't exist, right? They're not there. So I think, had had there been somebody to say that Charlie take a year off, but none of them were in the lead enough to be able to, to make that decision. And and I, I'll add one more thing, but I want you to continue with John. I don't want to cut you off, but it's almost like George was suggesting that because there's a scene towards the end yes. where George is saying, I really would love to just go off and record these songs. Obviously you guys are not going to take all of these songs I have. He was almost saying, like, look, can't can't I just go make a solo album and let's just take a little time for everyone to do what they want to do? It was almost like George was trying to get them to do that. But and John was cool with it, because like you said, Mike, George even said my quota for the Beatles records is filled for the next 10 years. He wasn't bitching about it. He knows I get two or three songs. So can I take these other ones and do an album? And John was like, yeah, fuck, you should do an album. I, I bet you all of those guys felt the same. They could have pulled a kiss. Right. In 69 or 70 and done four solo records. Right. That's exact, exactly what happened with Kiss in 77, 78. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it's like John, I always thought John at this moment in time was gone. Like, yeah. that's it. I'm done. But what this movie showed me was he wasn't done. He loved this. And, yes. dude, he's like, I, I kind of wish that we were of age around that time to maybe hang or something, you know, as if that could happen. <laughs> but he just seemed like such a fun dude to just be around. He was never serious. What he loved to do, which was awesome to me, was go back. He'll recite help. Did you notice yes. that? He does He does tomorrow, never knows. He throws in. Yeah, he, mo he mocked help. They're doing he, twist and shout. They're doing rock and roll music. They're love doing me do. Love I me do. Fine. Please, please me. Yeah. 
Actually, there's a great moment in Let It Be that isn't in this of them playing. You really got a hold on me. There's a lot mm. of stuff in Let It Be that's not here, actually. But uh, maybe that was by design. Maybe he wanted to show new stuff. All maybe. fresh stuff. Yeah, there's and there's there's a moment here and there that that wasn't Let It Be, but, but for a lot of it, uh, it's brand new and fresh. But yeah, John was like in such great spirits. There's been this stigma all these years that John was confrontational and nobody was getting along with him. And he had Yoko there and blah, blah, blah. But he was completely non-confrontational the entire time. He was joking, constantly making jokes and and smiling and having a good time. And uh, it was not at all what the the past 50 years of of, uh, stereotypes have have painted him as. We had been led to believe that he was a strung out heroin addict and he was insisting that Yoko be in the sessions and Yoko was this conniving bitch who was she wasn't doing anything man she was just hanging out and paul even says she's all right you see she's great can we talk about yoko for a minute or do you want to save that till after we go to the four let's talk about yoko absolutely i i think if, if we're going to talk about yoko being we're talking about john i think hopefully this movie will put to bed once yes. and for all this this ridiculous stigma that she broke up the beatles because it could not be any further from the truth when you yes. see what the hell's going on there she yes it, it's a little startling at first you i love the minute Paul walks in in the very first session, he has this look. You could see it where he's like, what the fuck is she doing in my seat? He, she's literally in the seat next to John where he's supposed to be sitting. <laughs> and he gives a look like you could see him give somebody a look like, what's up with this? But other than a, a little moment here and there, she doesn't say a word. You know, like those times where she grabs the mics and start doing her thing. That's when they're waiting on somebody else to come, like somebody's yeah, late for the session yeah. or whatever. But what, once and for all, they they. I think they were cool with her. I mean, I love there's a few moments there where uh, I, there's a moment in the in the uh, playback room where I think Ringo gives Yoko a piece of gum. And I love that she tears it in half and gives the other piece <laughs> the half to John. And then there's another moment when they're in the listening to the playback of the rooftop recordings where Paul and Linda are holding hands. and Ringo reaches over and like puts his hand on top of there. So they were all obviously you know, their wives were there, too. London was there for so much. Maureen was there. Patty stops by. You even look at the video they made that year for something. It starred all four of their wives. Yoko, yeah. Linda, Maureen and Patty are all in the something video. So I think all four of them were moving on to more domestic life at this point. And, and it, it, I, I think it's ridiculous that the stigma has always been blamed on, on Yoko. There's a great scene, the, the 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 jazz blues jam that we laugh about. Paul's on drums. He's loving it. She's screaming. You got to keep that was what was going on at the time with this avant garde music. There was no like sitting like this, like sing along, Yoko. We don't give a shit. Yeah, totally. Have fun. The, the best line is when Paul goes, in 50 years, they'll say we broke up because Yoko sat on an amp. Yeah. How crazy is that? It's exactly what happened <laughs> this is 50 years ago. Well, the great thing is because that was the, what they've been saying for the past 50 years. Maybe now that we are 50 years later and this movie exists, maybe that that uh, stereotype or stigma will finally be erased because there was so much so much more going on here and it was all business related the only time they ever got really down was when they started to talk about business between takes and between writing but when they're writing and playing man there is so much love there and it's not only love for the four of them you could tell that they love having linda and heather around and and maureen is there and yoko there you know the families are there nobody's bitching and moaning about it they really you could tell there's genuine love there what do you think charlie okay but there is a big elephant in the room though we can't not say that we can't say that yoko was was great everybody loved yoko because they say here and there in the film it's a distraction 
you know, and how she speaks for John. Oh, yeah. And there's other things in that, too. When they're talking about Alan Klein behind the window and she's talking, I think I think the problem with Paul and Yoko is, of course, he lost his partner and he misses that writing together, bouncing off. I mean, I've been doing this for how many years now? Now she comes in and completely takes him away. So I can't say that without feeling something that maybe she was a part of the breakup because John didn't want to be there. I'm not saying she's responsible for the whole thing, but she is a piece of that puzzle. But I think Paul also has a a, a lot of acceptance over where they're at because there's that one part at the beginning of, uh, I guess, part two, after when George left the band for those couple of days, where Paul says, we don't want to push John on this issue because if he's forced to choose between Yoko and the Beatles, he's going to choose the Yoko. So I think he was at that point, they were beginning to be accepting. And I almost wonder if one of the private conversations they had, uh, I guess it was at George's house, if maybe Yoko was brought up uh, at the private conversations, maybe it was making George uncomfortable. Maybe that was part of the issue that he got up and walked over. We, We don't know that, but. Right. So here's another weird thing. When, when back on John, when they go into the cafeteria and they hide the microphone in the flower pot in the flower pot. <laughs> Hold on. Just let me say it again. They hid a microphone in the flower pot and we're just hearing about this 50 years later. I know. How did, how did nobody No, I wonder no. if John and Paul ever w- were made aware of it. They weren't. I wonder if John died, never even knowing that that happened. You know, well, my if- point is, was it one of those things where it's like, you know, once you go in the cafeteria and discuss it, guys, just right. go in the cafeteria yeah. and discuss yeah. it. And then it's, it's wide yeah. open. Just go. And yeah, there's like, a okay, table available, a table available right over there. In, that one right there in the corner. Yeah, it worked. Go ahead, Charlie. So my point is this was, was George <laughs> pissed at Paul because the way it seems to me, John, John is talking to Paul about yes. the George situation as, as if John is telling Paul, we're kind of tired of having you tell us how you, want us to play your songs basically right but then it sounds like george is kind of pissed off at john because of yoko being maybe. there yeah maybe so it, it was very confusing that, that i kind of got the vibe charlie that that john was speaking on behalf of george and paul kind of realized maybe he'd gone too far in that because there's a telling line when paul says i feel that whenever i tell you what to play i'm annoying you and george goes you don't annoy me anymore aka I don't give a shit. I'm fucking done. Right. That's what I took from that. And I think you're right. I think Paul realized like, uh-oh, okay, that's because I was trying to tell him, just play what you want. And there, and John was like, you do it all the time. You're telling us what to play. We can't take it anymore. Just let us be pros, man. We know what to do. You don't have to tell every single thing. And maybe that was what kind of opened Paul's mind up a bit to go, I got to lay back a bit and give George some space, you know? Absolutely. But I'm talking about the part where... John is telling Paul how George feels, but then you're finding out that it's George who has a problem with Yoko. Oh, gotcha. Right. Yeah. I think like, like the history has always led you to believe that the big issue was George and Paul. Cause the original let it be had that scene. I'll play whatever you want me to play or I won't play at all. And then there was also, and then George <laughs> writing, I me mine, which supposedly was about Paul. So all these years for 50 years, legend had it that maybe the riff was between Paul and George, but you're right. I think maybe George had some resentments about the Yoko situation as well. Apparently, this isn't shown anywhere in this film, but I've read it elsewhere. There was a fight between George and John in the cafeteria 
at one mm. point before he left. And that's not documented anywhere, but that's what I've read. So that would further take uh, make this point that George was having issues with the dynamic with Yoko being there. Correct. So if we take this back, uh, they're in 1969 now. So let's go back just a, a, a bit prior to that, to the White Album. And John brings a bed into the studio for Yoko because she had some surgery or something. And uh, she was in the studio and in a bed because she was healing. I could not imagine how they felt about this. You know, this was back when it first started to happen. So at this point, I thought they would be, okay, it's cool. It's Yoko. She's here. You know what I mean? But apparently it wasn't. It was still good point you know, that that they had dealt with this for the previous album. I mean, she sings on Bungalow Bill and obviously Revolution Nine is all John and Yoko. So you're right. They've they'd already yeah. dealt, dealt with this for the previous album. I think I think where that comes from, you guys know this. John was always the rebel in the band. I think there's a little bit of a Sting Stuart Copeland thing here going on, too, where that John realized that Paul had just eclipsed him as a songwriter, as a musician, as a virtuoso. And I think his way of, of, of dealing with this goes, it, I'm bringing Yoko in the studio. You're coming with me. You want me in there? Yeah, exactly. But the both of them say to each other, you know, well, you are the boss, but now you're the boss. Mm. But that's another thing, too. And I think John might feel that way about Paul. But if you right. notice, Paul is always looking at John. He's mm. not looking for always. his approval. But to him, John is still the boss. He's the older brother. And Paul needs to have his approval and his his his, his pat on the back. I really feel that from this and that maybe John's got resentment to Paul, but Paul's just like, and dude, I just want to, I just want to impress you with my shit, man. Look right. what I can do. He's like, back off, dude. I've had enough. You know, I really felt Paul just wants John's love, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But the thing I found about John in this movie was John had a heart and he really cared about these guys too. I always yes. thought Lennon was just like, you know, you, Yeah. you don't want to be here. We'll go get Eric Clapton. You know, he would be that way. But yet <laughs> when he's talking to when him and when him and Paul are talking, you could just tell. Like they're looking at each other and they're really like, they know what they created. You know, they know, of course, I mean, even, even before the big fight, before George walks out, like George was trying to talk to Paul, but Paul would just like look to John and answer to John and talk to John. Yes. And there's a moment like right before George walks out where John and his uh, Paul is confiding in John and looking for input or whatever. And George is just sitting there like, what the, f like, he's just sitting there like being completely ignored. Yeah. Yeah. But can I, let me say one more thing about John, if you don't, if I can. Um, sure. On a creative level, level, he didn't bring much in. Like it, it, it dawned on me yeah. that uh, he brought in Dig a Pony and, and Don't Let Me Down. Don't Let Me Down. But otherwise, yeah. everything else. Uh, I mean, he collaborated. I've got a feeling that whole end part, he brought that in. But basically, um, I got a feeling, Get Back, Longer Winding Road, uh, Two of Us. Let it be across Let the universe. Well, across the universe. But that was already done a year prior. Yeah, though. that was 68. Yeah, but I'm saying that's his. Song. Right. But he, that, he didn't bring that in that it was already released as a single. Right. But my point is, he, he I'm not saying he checked out because he was obviously he still loved the Beatles, but he wasn't bringing in like most of these songs with stuff Paul brought in and George had so much stuff he was bringing in, even though it wasn't getting looked at or used. But John creatively wasn't bringing in as much to the table. Because his head wasn't there anymore. His head wasn't That's there, my exactly. thing. Like the songs that he was bringing in were almost songs like he, what he was doing before the Beatles, kind of rock and rolly type of things. But I also think John got way heavier at this point. You know what I mean? 
And I think it has a lot to do with the who. There's a couple of who references that John says. And um, there's one point that they're going crazy and John's playing this riff and it's really heavy. And I just thought to myself, Lennon is kind of, he's gone heavy at this point. After that rock and roll circus, after rock and roll circus, I really think it did something to him. Shortly after the the Get Back Sessions, he uh, recorded Cold Turkey and uh, some of the heavier tunes that he put out, like, and he started instant karma right, and he started the whole screen therapy stuff as well. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70 yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Let's move over to, to what we're talking a lot about George. We'll go back to Bob. Let's talk about George and his, his role in this movie. And let me just say one thing before we take off. I just did the kind of the real Liverpool tour with the guys that run the Cavern Club just a couple days ago. And it's interesting that I don't know if you guys know this or maybe you do know this, but from a financial status as kids, John, Paul, George and Ringo is the exact order. They went from from money to poverty. Ringo was the the poorest. George second, Paul third. And John actually had was the most affluent of the four. I think part of the problem with George is a he was always kind of poor little George, literally B. He was the youngest of the Beatles and C. they never saw him at their level because of those two reasons. They rescued him from poverty. They put him in the band as this young guy. He's always the up and comer. I don't think he got the respect from Paul and John because of that, because that's what they always thought him of is, oh, it's just little George. You know, he's got a couple of good songs. They never embraced the fact that he was George. Harrison. I think that was one of the biggest problems in the in the in the movie. It's one of the biggest problems with the last few years of the Beatles. And it's why in one of the greatest leaving scenes of all time, I think I'll be leaving the band now. When? Now. Yeah. I just guess up and walk. See around at the clubs. Yeah. <laughs> he just leaves. See the clubs. He just walks out. That's what by the way, I'm telling you guys right now, on my gravestone. It's going to say Chris Irvin, whatever. See you around the clubs. I'm telling you right now. And he goes to Liverpool. <laughs> yeah, he goes to Liverpool. But I, I really felt that like they're just kind of like, oh, he's just George. And not quite at the point where like, this guy's a genius too, man. We're not doing him any favors in being in the band. He's now part of this creative genesis that we have here. If I'm being honest, I felt kind of weird about George in this movie, to be honest with you. I love George. But I felt he was very, he was the curmudgeon in the band. Like he was, I'm not going on the roof. I'm not going to go do that. I'm not doing a TV show. I'm not doing this. I'm not going on a boat. And then he was complaining about they didn't get the money back from Magical Mystery Tour. Mm. (laughs) I thought that was, thought that was hilarious. You know, and Paul's like, what? Why? You know, why are you thinking about that now? He was also asking who was going to pay for the boat too, wasn't he? He's talking a lot about that. Who's going to pay for all this? George was the one I thought he was the smartest out of the whole band. He was, the, of course, he's the most spiritual. And I could tell George was getting angry when John and Paul were talking about India and kind of making, having a bit of a goof about it. You know what I mean? And then George came out with that line about um, yourselves, being yourself. Mm. 
Yeah, that was great. That was pretty. Yeah, what was his line, Charlie? What was the line? I forget the exact line that he said, but it was something about you went there to find yourself. Uh, or but, something they, to that John and Paul were saying how they weren't themselves there because they always had to put on a, a, a different oh, face. Gotcha. They had to be the Beatles. They couldn't be themselves when they were in India. And George was saying, like, the biggest irony is like you. The whole reason we went, went there was for you to yourself, find yourself. Yeah. yeah, I mean. Yeah, that was brilliant yeah. for him to say that. And it stopped. It shut the whole conversation down. Yeah, because I think they realized that, wow, we just insulted him because George was so into that. But it was proven that the guy was a, a fraud. Right. Sexy Sadie. Right. You know, so that's the thing that was the weird part about that conversation. George still believes that, hey, George gave his mansion to the Hare Krishnas. They were too hard. First of all, the one scene you see one there. <laughs> And then about 30 minutes later, there's two. Yeah. And and it's such a scene from a movie like Help. Oh, who's that? Oh, it's George. Right. <laughs> <laughs> He's just sitting there hanging around. He's the worst. Yeah. I mean, I, I love George, but I thought he kind of held the band back. Interesting. Well, I think I think maybe he was just fed up of, of knowing that there was this quote. And like, like you said earlier, had there been a, a, a Mr. Epstein, a bill, a coin, you know, to go, go away, do your triple solo album, get all these great songs out. And by the way, as we all know, All Things Must Pass is still the highest selling Beatles solo album ever. The songs are great. There's not a bad song on it. I just think if they think of their schedule that they were on six months album, six months albums, single like <laughs> Paul writes, get back in three minutes during the movie, which is amazing. And then they're like, well, let's just we'll just release it next right. week. Like. Are we doing the TV special like in three days? Like they're so big that they could just go, yes, uh, BBC, we're doing a live TV special of the Beatles. Okay, book it. Think about that. Think about how quickly they worked and just how much um, accommodation they had of just like, oh, we'll put out the single tomorrow. If, if one of our bands puts out a single, there's four or five months of planning. Right. Make sure it's the right time. They're so big. We'll write it on a Tuesday. We'll release it on a Friday. Done. Okay. See you later. Well, Bye. that's why the, the biggest, the craziest thing is if you look at the old Beatles history, you know, they only were making records for about six or seven years. And you look at all the records they made, all the movies they made, all the videos they made, all the touring they did. It's just ridiculous. But that's because they had this work ethic that was literally booked every single day but as much as they could say okay we're putting out get back next week they still couldn't get an eight an eight track recorder brought in george had to like <laughs> had to donate it from his home studio right because it's still 1969 that that technology doesn't exist well, right? no, he had it he owned one and it was at his home studio and yeah. the beatles couldn't get one brought over from from emi or abbey road so it was also it was interesting at times to see the things that they couldn't do, you know, the things where they, the times where they wanted something and were told, well, we can't do this or we can't do that. It's like, well, the Beatles, they should be able to do anything. Another thing I love that I never knew is George loves toast. Yeah, well, yeah they all do. <laughs> that's that's, yeah, all, that's all they ate. Toast. Well, George, toast. He liked the cauliflower too. He said he enjoyed the cauliflower. That oh, they he wanted the veggie dish. And he wanted the cauliflower with, with the, the cheese, cheese sauce. Yeah. The cheese <laughs> sauce, yeah. And, and, Ring, and Ringo wanted the mashed potatoes <laughs> for lunch. Yeah. What do you want? Just mashed potatoes, that's it. It was I don't think it, <laughs> tea and toast, tea and toast, and, tea and, and cigarettes, toast. <laughs> cigarette and cigarettes. Of God, those guys are smoking like you know. Obviously, we see it now, and it was just the 20th anniversary of George passing from cancer, and you're just like, you don't want to make a joke right. about it, but like, no wonder they're nonstop smoking. He plays a riff, smokes, plays a solo, like they're smoking in between verses. 
dude, two things, two things I have to say about the smoking. There's a disclaimer. You know, yes. there's going to there's going to be some language and smoking. Yeah. The <laughs> other thing I loved about the Beatles, they had the most creative ways of putting their cigarettes on guitars or mic yes. stands. Did you see the part where I think George does it? He puts it on a string and it's just dangling. <laughs> they didn't have ashtrays. They're constantly like leaving the cigarettes on the amps or putting them out on the floor. And uh, I, I was also surprised that Paul was smoking cigars uh, yes. in the first part a lot, yeah. which I'd never seen. I just went to uh, Strawberry Fields. There's a museum there now. John's piano from that movie is there and cigarette burns all on the side. If these are the keys and there's the wooden part, there's cigarette burns all over it. So he just put it down on the side of the piano. Whatever. Who cares? The one thing we have to talk about, because you know we're talking about George here, is that Ringo, I think, got it more than anyone. Yes. He got it. You know, he's like, he loved watching Paul just play the piano because he knew yeah. this guy, this guy is the guy that I'm going to be. My, my money's on this guy. Mm-hmm. So I think Ringo was the one who was, he was the glue, as you can see through the whole thing. The irony of that, Charlie, is that Ringo didn't stick with Paul after they broke up. Ringo went and played with John in the Plastic Ono Band, and he played with George for All Things Must Pass. So he kind of, his allegiance when they finally split was more to George and, and John. He was also with the Alan Klein group, too, wasn't the three of them with right. the Alan, the Alan Klein, Klein and Paul went with... Eastman, Lee Eastman. That was, I think, one of the biggest. That's probably why. That's probably more on Paul's end than anybody's. Well, who did they send? Remember, they sent Ringo to uh, to tell Paul he's fired. Yeah. (laughs) And him and him and Ringo got into it, and then of course, when Paul left the band, I think that left a bad taste in Ringo's mouth. To 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 Mike's point. Yeah, probably a bad taste in Paul's mouth too. It's like you want. It's like Sammy Hagar and you know Van Halen. You want to go with Michael Anthony? Absolutely. You know. Or Michael Anthony, should I say. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Well, let's move on to Ringo since we're here right now. Uh, I think that another stereotype that's blown away by this movie, and and we know because we're all musicians, and, and, and Ringo's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. Off, he's a great drummer, one of the greatest of all time, and you can see just how important he is to the Beatles during these sessions. He's always waiting. These guys are screwing around around whatever when it's time to play he's there when they start doing any little riff get back gets once again it's one of the most impressive scenes in the movie where paul just starts hitting chords and comes up and then and then and ringo's clap 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 he's waiting he knows these geniuses are there when you catch the lightning in exactly. the ball, you he's feeling it. it you know and he's feeling it a that's a b by far the nicest guy in the movie like i want to can hang out with Ringo in 1969 and just like <laughs> eat some mashed potatoes together. He's like, he's the, he's the dude, man. Like everybody just wants to like, he's just the best guy watching that. I was like, wow, this is really cool to see him just being like on the spot, total professional and just a really cool guy. Absolutely. He was always the first to arrive. And like you said, Chris, he's, he is there 
Yeah. No matter, people are coming and go. John, Paul, and George come and go, and there's all different configurations. Even when Billy Preston's there, but Ringo is there all the time. He's sitting behind that kit, smoking his cigarettes, and just waiting for, to play. He just wants to play. He just wants to be there to be the backbeat of the band. Yes. And he's the only Beatle we've ever seen fart as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He admits it. And nobody and nobody sells it as we said, Russ. No one wants to hear about it. He just is like, I fought it, you know? And the funny thing is, too, they're doing this album and this TV special and all these things right. based around Ringo's schedule because he's about ready to make the Magic Christian, the movie, which I thought was another cool thing. Like most people, well, not most people, but you would think that it's like right. oh, the movie. This is the Beatles here. Ringo, you can do your movie some right. other time. They had the respect. As Paul said, it's a square. There's a four. There's a four sided square. Ringo's got a movie. We got to be done yeah, by that's Tuesday. Great. That's just the way it is. The other thing is Ringo's wife, Maureen, who I think not a, not a lot of yeah. things are mentioned about Maureen, but Maureen was a huge Beatle fan from the beginning, from the Cavern days, from the Cavern days. And when they did the last song on the roof, right, they finish it. And what does Paul do? Paul says, thanks, Mo. Yeah. And he, he pays a tribute to her because she wanted that. So did Linda, too. They, yeah. they wanted the Beatles again. And uh, that was a real cool moment, I thought. You know what's cool for me, Charlie, is I've heard that song, you know, 45 years and listened to that album. And I remember it's because, like you said, the, 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 the get back is from the rooftop. And you could hear Paul say, thanks, Mo. And I never realized he was saying, thanks, Mo, Mo a.k.a. Maureen, thanks, yeah. Maureen. I just thought he was like, thanks, Mo. I, like I always thought it was Gunsmoke. Like like Gunsmoke. <laughs> I really did. Until this movie, I didn't realize he was talking to Mar Maureen. And but to see that, I was like, that was really cool. Because like you said, she was there from the start. She started as a Beatles fan and then married a Beatle. But like, she's rocking in the studio. Like, she's totally. It, and, and, and with Linda, too. Linda as well. To like, go back to the Yoko thing, I think. Ooh, this this may come out weird, but I think those two were Beatle fans. I think Yoko was just waiting for her turn hmm. to be in the spot. You ever notice, like after the show is over yeah. on the rooftop, she's not happy, and John's like, "What's wrong? What's wrong?" You know? Oh right. But right. They, don't, they don't go That's into like the first it. Thing he does, he you know what I mean? Like, what, what's wrong? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then he lights a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he's like, "What's wrong? What's wrong?" And I bet it was something about she wanted her chair right next to him when he was singing. Oh God! Wow. Yeah, like wow. she's probably mad that she had to sit with Maureen and Alan Parsons over there. I never thought about that. Alan Parsons. Yeah, he's one. Of, he's Alan, he's sitting Alan over there Parsons. with uh, Yoko and, and Maureen. Yeah, that's the most random appearance ever. Alan Parsons, uh, who of the goes Alan on Parsons Project, goes on to just have to be in the studio. Side, dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, Pink Floyd. That's right. I and of course, he does right. Alan Parsons Project. Crazy. And just a quick, quick little segue for everybody listening, because. Mike brought this up and we, I did some research on it when Glenn Johns, once again, they got magic Christians. They got to finish by Tuesday. They got to finish uh, also because Glenn Johns uh, is going to LA for another gig. And Mike had the great point. What other gig could you have that's bigger than the Beatles? Right. Exactly. It turns out he, he actually, uh, he engineered, let it bleed by the stones. So within a few months, Zeppelin, Stones, and the Beatles. Let it bleed, let it be, and and uh, yeah. Zeppelin won within a few months. <laughs> and Zeppelin won. So, I, you know, and once again, it's still the Beatles, but I can see him going, the Stones are waiting for me. I got Zeppelin over here. Right. You guys got to wrap this shit up. <laughs> Talk about him for a minute. We also talked about his fashion sense. I mean, he was like, 
if you think about that classic <laughs> late 60s Roman Polanski, Phil Spector look, Austin Powers, totally. Austin Powers. <laughs> yeah. but he, he was a rock star. He was totally a rock star. And, he, you know, he had done all of those Stones albums prior to doing the Get Back Sessions. And he continued to work with the Stones all through the 70s. So he was a bit of a rock star in his own right. You know, yeah. absolutely. His clothing was, was was just the best. Well, I, I love the fact that they all dressed up for the most part. Come to the studio. They were they were wearing, you know, cool. Paul loves his vests. Not John. They all do. George and Ringo dressed up, but not John ever. That's true. John wore a vest. Let me ask you a quick question. Why, why, why was Glenn John's at the session and not George Martin, even though another stereotype uh, blown away, George Martin was all over the place. Why wasn't George Martin? I producing think he was. Album? And then they all bailed on it. John didn't want, I thought John didn't, I thought John wanted Phil Spector. Uh, Glenn or well, after he wanted Phil Spector, but I thought, well, Glenn, yeah, because Glenn think the, left. The question is why yet, wasn't right? Jeff Emmerich there? I believe Jeff Emmerich left the engineer position during the white album. So George Martin was still producing the get back sessions, even though he didn't in the end. But I think when they were making it, he was still there as the producer. And Glenn Johns was now the engineer now that Jeff Emmerich wasn't there anymore. But once the sessions kind of fell through, see, we, we see this movie ending and it's like, oh, this great ending. Oh, they live happily ever after. No, they ended up shelving this footage for 50 years they, and, and only brought it back. A right. year later, after Abbey Road came out, when they wanted Phil Spector to just at least put out some of it. But at that point, Glenn was off the off the project. George Martin was off the project. Right. But George Martin talks about that, how he wasn't in, involved in Let It Be. And then he gets the call from Paul later on saying, we're going to we want to do another record. And George says, well, if I'm going to do it, it's got to be under my, you know, it's got to be my way. And that, of right. course, was Abbey Road. But. I, I remember Paul hating Let It Be because of what Phil Spector did to it. You know, I hate I don't like Let It Be. You know, I never did. I recently listened to the, the 50th anniversary version of, of Let It Be that just came out. And I know Phil Spector gets crapped on for adding strings to uh, Long and Winding Road. But you know what? They always had strings on their stuff. They always had like Eleanor Rigby or She's Leaving Home. So I don't see what the big disgrace about him adding strings to something like Long and Winding Road was. Maybe it wasn't Paul's vision because they wanted this session to be a live band. Just the four of them ultimately became the five of them with Billy Preston. But I don't think Phil Spector really ruined the Let It Be sessions. If you look at them having hundreds of hours of takes and footage and, you know, 47 takes of Get Back, Somebody had to go through all that and yeah. make something of it. And I think Phil Spector did not do such a bad job. I prefer the production on Let It Be than the mix on All Things Must Pass. And Phil Spector also went to work on the Plastic Ono Band album. And it's weird because Plastic Ono Band was dry and, and just a three-piece band dry, whereas All Things Must Pass was the big wall of sound uh, Phil Spector production. So I think, and you guys can appreciate this, this, this is Paul's vision. It's his art. And he doesn't want anybody touching it and by that point too paul was out of the beatles so they probably went screw it give it to phil Spector, and he probably didn't even know about it until exactly. it came out which used to happen all the time and that's probably why he was furious about it so now that we're talking about paul let's talk about paul in get back in the in this movie uh once again i'll start off the stereotype of paul being kind of this controlling vindictive know-it-all blowhard I don't see it. There's moments of it. But listen, you guys, we've been in bands for 30, 20, 50, 40, in that, Charlie, almost 40. You always know there's those times where the guy gets on your nerves. And Paul has that. But overall, dude, he's just 
the dude trying to exactly. keep his band together and yeah. get him back on track to play some music because we are the best. Let's not forget that. That's what I got from it. If he wasn't doing that, I don't think John was not in the capacity to lead the band. Then surely George and Ringo isn't going to take the reins. So he had to. Paul did it by default because he was still passionate about the band. He loved the band. Once Brian Epstein died, he was the yeah. first to step up and and uh, wanted to direct Magical Mystery Tour. So, you know, he was at that point kind of, you know, taking the, the lead. And you can't fault him for that. He was trying to hold it together. He was he was the only Beatle. Yes. He was the last Beatle to leave the band. Ringo left during the White Album. George left during Get Back. And, <laughs> and John left at some point in 69. Even though Paul get blamed for leaving, being the one that quit the Beatles and broke up the Beatles, he was the only one that hadn't quit the Beatles. But I think the, the, the issue with the Beatles at that time is it was a daunting... I mean, how could you ask those guys, we're going we're gonna to come up with 14 songs after they had just did the White Album? Right. That's a double album of songs. And Charlie, come up with 14 songs in three weeks, by the way. Right. And then we're going to perform and perform them live on TV. So could you imagine that? That's a bit much. And I could I could tell the guys were just not into it, but Paul was into it. But you could see Paul's between part one and part two when George leaves the band. By the time they move into Apple Studios in the second part and George comes back, you could see Paul takes a, a, a step back. And especially once Billy, once Billy Preston arrives, Paul is almost quiet. Yeah, I, totally. I think he, he was very conscious of the fact that maybe the other guys were starting to feel resentful towards him. And I, to his credit, I think he stepped back because that's part of what they needed to get through those sessions. I agree. He does have a great line. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you back to you, Charlie, in a second. He does have a great line when they are so impressed by Billy Preston. And he does. He fits in just perfectly. He's great and once again i never knew how much billy was actually involved in those sessions and then john and george want to bring him in the band and paul's like yeah four is bad <laughs> enough we don't need a fifth and actually i'm not sure george goes you sure why don't we bring bob dylan right. why don't we bring them all which in? he ended up doing he ended up forming a band with, with bob dylan all those years later with the traveling wilburys that's, yeah, that's right good point uh, four is enough like i can't take a fifth but do you think it was um i mean they're the beatles okay and you can't you cannot forget the history of all four of them being the Beatles, right? So now Paul starts micromanaging. And I think there was re some resentment towards that. And, uh, and then I think, look, the George thing with Paul, I think, I think George should have kind of knew at that point, look, this dude is writing these songs that has given us number one hits uh, throughout our career constantly, constantly. okay? I'm not going to get mad. I'm going to submit my songs and, and let's see where they go. I mean, it's crazy to me that the last Beatle album had two of George's best songs, you know, which he's just working on during these right. sessions. So he says he doesn't even have those songs yet. Right. You know, so another, another thing I really liked too was just how supportive they were of each other. Like it's one of my favorite scenes when R Ringo, once again, doesn't say shit, does what you want. I'll play whatever i got i got something i know it's kind of <laughs> weird it might have even been his first one i'd like to be under the sea octopus's garden in the shade and some people laugh and george wanders over with a guitar and he goes play that again you guys know the scene like 
Let's try it this way. Let's add a little tail here. George comes in and like he hears this is cool. Yeah. And it's Ringo's thing. So you want everyone in your band to feel part of it. I'm going to work with Ringo on this tune. Let's see what happens. And once again, it's a classic song written by Ringo Starr with George's help. But I just thought that was really cool. And you see Paul and John doing that and they're working with each other. Let's hear that again. Like they know if any one of these four comes in with something cool, we should we should work on it because the proof is here. Exactly. If, if it's a song that's worthy and they hear something, then of course they're going to make it a Beatles song and all four of them are going to do right. it. Back to my thing about George. I just think that, you know, George felt like I'm not being heard here. Yeah. And now that we have Apple, I can, I can do my own record, you know? Right. So I, I just thought there was a lot of things in this movie that changed my mind or changed my views about the Beatles around that time. I thought they all hated each other. And it's apparent that that is not true. Totally. It's the opposite. Totally. It's the opposite. Let's go to um, some of our favorite scenes from the movie. Because once again, I bet you, Don't Let Me Down, Get Back, Two of Us, Dig a Pony, they're probably top four on Apple Music. Like, <laughs> I bet you people are discovering these songs because besides Get Back, they're not really big hits. So from a music musical standpoint, if I had never hear those songs for a while, I'm cool because we hear them again and again and again and again. It's great. It's the stuff in between the humor. The, there's so much, there's so many gems in this movie. What are some of the scenes that stick out for you guys? And the first one I'm going to go to was two of us riding solo. John <laughs> They're singing with their, John and Paul with their teeth closed like, like fire marshal Bill. They could have been ventriloquists. Yeah, and, and Lennon's really, and he's got the face too. He's got a stupid face that he's making. And I've, I watched that laughing. Like, this is the Beatles hard day's night shit. And there's no like, hey, let's do it. They just start doing it. And they even lock in on the goofy stuff. You know, it's like, I just love seeing that because the, these guys were friends, brothers, and just musically connected like probably nobody else in the history of music has been. That was one of my yeah. favorite scenes. I got a million more, but what do you think, Mike? You got one? Oh, so many. I mean, I, I just love learning things that I never knew, like like Paul presenting Golden Slumbers on the piano to Ringo and saying that he wrote for that section, the Carry That Weight section for Ringo specifically to sing. Like, I had no idea. You could hear wow, Ringo right. singing it on the Abbey Road version, but apparently there, there was a whole verse and everything that he had for like Ringo to be singing lead on. I never knew that. I, I loved... Um, just some of the geeky musical things like watching um, like John and George play the Fender, uh, the, the, the bass that, what is it? Like the bass six, uh, like a baritone it's, or something. It's like, yeah. That Fender baritone, like uh, six string bass. Like every time Paul went to the piano because they were recording live, you know, they wanted this to be a live band without overdubs in the past. Of course, anybody could play piano and, Paul could do play his bass tracks as well. But in this case, trying to perform live as a live band, anytime he went to the piano, George or John had to play bass, like on Long and Winding Road or Let It Be, Two of Us. I, I loved seeing that. That's something that like a, a lot of people probably never even realized. And that was also the reason they had to bring Billy Preston in as well, because they wanted to perform this stuff live. Look, I, there's a list. I mean, I, after this came out, I posted on my social media lists of Thing after thing after thing yeah, after thing did. after you thing. Yeah. It's just like every scene was just pure gold. Those are a few that just come to mind off, <laughs> off the top of my head, but there's so many. 
How about you, Charlie? Before you came on, me and Mike were talking about a couple of things. Just one quick one was John forgets the cameras are there and he reaches in his coat pocket to pull something out and he notices the cameras on. He said, whoops, and he puts it back. And Mike thinks it was a joint. We don't know what it was, but that's such <laughs> you a think maybe it was a bag scene. of heroin or something. Maybe. I don't think he would do that in front of the, of the, the rest of the guys. I don't maybe know. a joint, you know. Well, there's a scene where Paul's smoking a joint, though, isn't there? There's a brown cigarette that Paul's smoking. smoking. It's not a cigarette. Cigars Watch it again. One, but maybe there were spliffs. There's maybe a little there spliffs. Like, I don't yeah. know. I, I, they were surprisingly yeah. sober. You think about the pepper sessions and, you know, they were doing acid and all the you know, years before that. Uh, smoking pot. I was on just, the roof. John went on the right. roof, remember? <laughs> to fool George Martin. <laughs> maybe because the sessions were mainly in the in the morning and afternoon. But So there's a scene, there's a scene where they're talking about the old days of playing a show and Jimmy Nichols was look, too busy look, yeah. looking at the, the, the chicks in the audience that he, he didn't make the, the start of the song. And he, he and Paul's like, he gets all nervous and just comes in, you know, and they all got a, had a laugh about that. I, I love hearing those stories about touring shows, you know, yeah. I wish there was more of that. He also gets a mention too. And they said, uh, Ringo's not going to uh, Africa. <laughs> So we're going to Africa with Jimmy uh, Nichols. Yeah. <laughs> I loved watching Paul just giggle at John. Yeah. There's there's four or five scenes where and he's got this like <laughs> 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 and then they're talking about India and he goes, I love the story you told when you got in that helicopter and you said I was hoping he would slip me the answer. And then they go into this whole thing about how the Maharishi would slip John Lennon the answer to the secret of the universe. And Paul's just laughing and they're, it's like, it's a comedy routine, you know? And like that sort of stuff to me is like, that is the pure gold of get back. Just dudes just around like we all do with our friends, you know? Exactly. Like you just said that. And then there's a, there's a couple of scenes where they just give John the floor and he goes into this improv. Yes. And they're just, watching him and enjoying it you know and then they'll do it like a thing from hard day's night where they all get together and they start talking and then ringo comes into it and starts you know make believe he's drinking so it's it's such a the camaraderie to me is just oh, i love it i love it the scene where they're both looking up at the sky talking and you can tell they're like they're just doing it just to f around looking up uh, another great one is when peter sellers comes in typical hollywood just a total like kind of loser like dick he's supposed to be a comedian and john's just going there's english comedians called reeves and mortimer from the 60s and 70s i know i know i know exactly what he's doing he's just riffing and peter Sellers is standing there going what the <laughs> hell is going on with these guys and he's not he's not trying to join in he's not trying to ingratiate himself he just stands there like a snob and john just keeps going and they finally leave and he's like yelling at it as he leaves he's still doing the bit he didn't care it was great I loved seeing uh, them do each other's songs, like hearing uh, John, no, hearing Paul do I'm So Tired or uh, Paul Strawberry, Strawberry Fields, Fields. Yeah, or hearing John, like, you know, Obladi Oblada. It's very interesting hearing them call back earlier songs and just playing each other's. Yeah. yeah. Can, we, can we talk about their uh, publisher? Sure. Oh, Dick James. Great point. So, so just for people listening, Dick James basically ripped off the Beatles. I think it was a 90, 10 split that they signed when they were like 19 or 20 years old. And it took Paul and maybe John never even got the money. It took Paul years to get out of that publishing deal. Is that correct? Yes. And this 
guy shows up. Do you remember Michael Jackson bought the Beatles? Yes. So uh, caused a big problem he, with Paul and Michael. Yes, it did. So I wonder if that was from Dick James. Well, so Dick James shows up and they're they're being cordial because they were taught to be, I think, by Mr. Epstein. But you can tell they're like this worm. This he, guy. As he's leaving the studio, he's like trying to say goodbye to them all. He says goodbye to John. John won't even look at him. Nothing. Won't even yeah. look at him. The most awkward leaving ever is just like, well, all right, then <laughs> they're just not even paying attention. <laughs> and this guy looks like if I could draw like evil English publisher, I would draw him like this fat lips, big glasses, <laughs> shitty receding hair and a cigar. <laughs> cigar. <laughs> what a cast the character. But what was he there to do? He was showing them the, the publishing songs that he owns or something. Yeah. And like Paul kept saying, wow, this one too, that one too, you know? And I was like, what is this meeting about? Yeah. Was he, was he just there to talk to his clients and you know, they, they weren't stupid at this point in time. They knew what was going on. And I think they were just cordial to him because they had to be, but I was really surprised when he came in there. Yeah, just, I thought it was just kind just of awesome. big time. You could tell they wanted nothing to do with it. He came there to schmooze and hang out. And they at one point, Paul is just like, let's go play or whatever. Just enough of this, this like anytime they had to talk business, it was a downer. And that's pretty much all the shit that was shown in let it be all that shit. But it was so yeah. great to not right see all that stuff anytime. And, and they cleared a lot of the house too. Once they went to Apple, even though it was a pe people constantly coming and going, but the Twickenham sessions in part one, there was just 20 or 30 people on that soundstage with them at, at any given moment. And they're talking and bickering and Paul sitting there trying to write, let it be while everybody's having a, a, a meeting and a discussion and talking business. And you could tell that was probably part of the frustration too. like, get these people out of here. We just want to, play yeah and michael lindsey hogg would just oh, keep coming annoying. over with different different scenarios what if we did it on the beach in florida you know he just keeps coming up with different scenarios brighton beach yeah, yeah brighton <laughs> beach what if we go to a children's orphanage <laughs> it's like what but he goes he goes but not children that are dying of cancer <laughs> or something children that broke their legs yeah. <laughs> it's like what the? i thought i thought he, he was asshole. horrible i mean i i he started to annoy the academy within the first like 20 minutes or so. He just because he was trying to, you know, pretend like he was bigger than the band. Even at one point, Linda, Linda says how much of a fan she is. And yes. he's like, oh, you're not as big as me. Like he challenged her like, oh, yeah, yeah I'm the bigger yeah. Beatle fan. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I like the fact that history will show that he made the biggest piece of shit that the Beatles buried for 50 years. And Peter Jackson was the one that made the real film about this. Exactly. Cause you can't, you, you can't find let it be. They've never officially released that. Have they? No, it's been out of print for at least 30 years or so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we all have bootlegs of it, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's horrible when you watch it now, it's just such a downer. Whereas this, was the complete opposite. It was such a joy. It made me hate that record. Remember, I, I would always say, I don't like Let It Be. Yeah, I, I never yeah. listened to that record. That to me is, it's not a good Beatle record, you know, but I'll tell you this much. After this, I've been listening to it constantly, constantly, constantly. I've always loved, like, like Dig a Pony. I remember when you guys played that in Yellow Matter Custom. I'm like, this is like a Rush riff. Or they like, bang -a -dang -a -dang -a -dang -a -dang -a you got to pay attention when you're playing that's, that. Yeah. And that's another thing I really liked. I loved watching them construct these songs. And this is pure, like, it's just improv jamming. And I mean, like, I don't know how you guys write your songs, but it's almost like when I hear the Chili Peppers just get in a room and just mess around. Like, 
okay, let me play this little riff here and let me try this. And what's the harmony on that? It's too high for me. Just to see, once again, let me just stop right here and and say what I was going to say earlier. You got to keep in mind, this is the Beatles, the biggest band in the world, right? And I just thought of something. All the Dick James. (laughs) Okay. But all the Dick James and Peter Souls, they've seen these guys for years. They've seen them coming and going. They know who the leeches are. They know who the worms are. They know who the dicks are, but they're still cordial to them because that's how they were. That's how they were trained. They're the Beatles. They can do whatever they want. They can have a live TV special on BBC tomorrow. But when Dick James shows up, all right, let him in. We'll still talk to him. I just thought that shows that they were like if maybe it's Mr. Epstein, but they were raised properly in the music business to always be gracious. And they weren't they weren't dicks at all. Oh, we're the Beatles. They weren't. I never saw that once. There was no arrogance about how huge they are. They're all still very humble. I thought that was very interesting. Uh, I'm sorry. I, what you triggered something. Go for it. You got I, 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 around maybe 10 times in this film, John with that line. And now oh, the yeah. Rolling Stones. <laughs> <laughs> now your hosts, Rolling the Rolling Stones. Although the one time he goes, now your hosts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just the best. There's another great line, too, where they're coming up with something and someone goes, that's a good idea. He goes, I know it's a good idea. I'm known for them. I'm literally a Beatle, you know. <laughs> he, he's the one guy who's like, don't you know that we're the Beatles? We're Hello. supposed to be geniuses and all oh, this. Oh, man. One, one, one quick thing. Sorry. When they, when they first show Alan Klein, do you notice the song that they play behind, behind the uh, image? Is it I Me Mine? What? You Never Give Me Your Money. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You that's right. That's money. right. It's like clever. Yeah, totally. It was very interesting, too. Uh, you could really hear in John's voice that he was really trying to bring the guys onto the Alan Klein trip. And even Glenn Johns goes, yeah, you know, he's, he's weird. Oh, but I like it. Well, fuck, when you talk to him, if he doesn't like your answer, he interrupts you. Like, Glenn's trying to warn him this guy's a dick, but John's overselling it to the guys. He's a superstar. And you could see, as a, yes, and I think, Yoko, all this other stuff. I think that was it that, that had, had Epstein not died, the Beatles would have continued because that's where it started with Klein coming in. Paul didn't want it because he probably had heard that he was a snake. John wanted it. And that probably was, was the rift that they couldn't get over. It was, I think history that, that was pretty much the next few months and chapters post get back was them making Abbey road. And then ultimately broke breaking up. I think once that, that line in the sand was drawn where Paul wanted to work with Linda's dad, but John, George and Ringo wanted to work with Alan Klein and it never came together. And I think that's when John and Paul pretty much left the band after Abbey Road. I think I think that was the biggest, biggest catalyst for, for them breaking up. You know, all these other elements were, were things, but I think that was ultimately the final nail in the coffin. I, I agree. I also feel there was a lot of like, well, I'm going to leave the band. Well, I'm going to leave the band. Well, I'm no, I'm going to do it. Well, I'm going to well, do it. Okay, do right. it. Fine, I'll do it. Fine, do it. Right. We leave. And then for the next five years, it's just like, you know, neither one of them wants to make inroads. But like I told you guys, Bob Gruen, the photographer, told me that Paul used to come to the Dakota all the time in the 70s until Sean was born. And then John didn't want to have anything to do with it. It took years to get there, though. Those first couple of years when, when John wrote... How do you sleep? Directed at Paul, and he, sleep, and he yeah. had the insert in the Imagine album of him holding a pig, you know, mocking Paul's Ram cover, Ram. And, and the fact that uh, yeah. you know that <laughs> John and George worked with Ringo, but Paul didn't. I mean, it, it took years 
before they finally got over all that that bullshit and, and came back together uh, in the mid. Let, let me just throw a few other things on the. On your, were you guys watching this? Like these songs have been around for fifty years, but when they're trying to come up with the lyric, like sweet sweet Loretta Marsh, uh, and it's like no, it's Martin. You got to be the sweet. <laughs> right. They, they don't quite get it, you know. And you're like, you're hoping that they get it. We know right. that they get it, but watching the movie, you're just like, no, it's Martin. You got to come up with Martin. Right. She uh, loves me like a pomegranate. Yeah, that was, that was the <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love I love that. Uh, I had no idea that they just literally uh, would, just, you know, randomly sing a lot of these lyrics, and Mal Evans would have to sit there and transcribe it down, and then you yeah. know like, they're just writing as they're going. And I always assumed that was the thing with the music, but it looked like it was like that with the lyrics as well. And Mal had to sit there and transcribe it. And then I love when they're on the rooftop. Uh, somebody wants to play dig a pony, but John's like, I, I don't know the lyrics. So they have to get Kevin, uh, the, the <laughs> Kevin Harrington, Kevin Harrington. I never noticed that 50 years of seeing that footage of him sitting there with a, a pad right in front of John holding the lyrics, you know, pre teleprompters, you know? Well, and, and, I, and like you got, you guys, we've talked about this. I'm sure you were the same. Like I had this book when I was nine years old, Beatles A to Z. I knew every guy. Uh, that's why I love seeing magic Alex. Yeah. I've never actually oh, seen it yeah. before. He never talks. He never talks. Though. But he comes in with that uh, that, that double sided back that's <laughs> rotating the bass guitar. guitar. <laughs> He's got a. It looks like a freaking pillow, and if you swing it one way, it's a bass, and you turn it around, and it's a guitar. Well, you it's know, like you know, somebody's ever. gonna make that now, right? But there was every scene with Magic Alex is like a, a scene out of Spinal Tap. Yes, there was a lot of Spinal Tap moments, honestly. Well, there was. Oh God, this is. Well, when Magic Alex decides he can make a whole studio, and then they actually try and use it, and it ends up like having the worst sound, yeah. super bad hissing qualities, all this other stuff. It was the, the other one I really liked too was during Get Back. When uh, when it was a protest song for a short period of time, and he's singing about Jojo Pakistani, that fucking made me laugh so hard. Jojo Pakistani, and it's, it's so it's not the words, Paul. It's not gonna work. <laughs> oh man! So so we're just talking about Magic Alex's uh, rotating guitar, Charlie. Oh, dude, I love that. It looked like a Mattel special. <laughs> hey, actually, can we talk about the gear for a minute? That's one of the sure. things that freaked me out. Um, just seeing some of the gear. I mean, the footage was so pristine, but seeing like that Fender Rhodes being brought in with the two-sided amp, one's facing yeah. towards Billy Preston, one's face. I'd never seen that. Oh. And I love that six-string bass that we talked about earlier. And I love that Ringo, uh, you know, was added a second rack tom and I, the, the towels on the drums. And he brought that splash in. And the towels so over cool, the drums is interesting. Over his floor tom too. I guess he liked the kind of a, would that give it a deader tone or something? Yeah. I mean, that's his famous. I thought those were Peisty cymbals that he was playing. Are they not? They, I, I thought they were Zildjian's. I don't know, man. I thought they were Peisty because he was talking about, he was also doing his Keith Moon right. thing too. <laughs> Seeing Paul's, uh, uh, the famous Hoffner, I think there was, he owned two of them, I, I believe. And I think they both appear in this. One is the older one with the guitar strap is attached to the uh to the, the neck, uh, yeah yeah but then there's yeah. the one that he plays on the rooftop which had a traditional strap and it had that baseman sticker on it yeah and the set list on the and side the exactly. set list on the side so that has been with him since 66 i yeah. i think i think one he only ever had two and i think one of them got stolen right after the get back sessions i think the early one with the strap on the headstock got stolen right after the sessions but i think the one with the baseman sticker 
he still has. Right. It was cool seeing him play as Rickenbacker too, which was, was always say, like I was gonna say that. Yeah, I love that. That's when I became friends with Lemmy. When uh, we were just talking about bases, he's like, well, everyone talks about the Hoffman. Yeah, yeah, no one ever talks about the Rickenbacker. He's like, you know Paul plays a Rickenbacker? I'm like, yeah. He goes, whoa, let's have a chat. Yeah. That was my that was my bridge to Lem. <laughs> he didn't know how to work it. They, like, uh, uh, I think George Mullen's coming and trying to mess with the tone. And Paul's like, yeah, I don't even know what these knobs do. Yeah, he doesn't know anything about it. But can we talk about John's playing for a minute? Yes. Because Amazing. John is a rhythm player is awesome. Yeah. Yep. Like. That dude, like, I never heard a bum note yeah. from him. And to see him play it, once again, Charlie, when you see him play, you can't believe how, how good he is because you don't really pay attention. But like you said, he was always on it. And and and, and why did he play the leads on Get Back? Maybe because George wasn't there. But that, that's a perfect lead for that song. It's Dude, awesome. it's so great the way he plays in that song. And he's playing that casino guitar, which they love. It's all over the White Album, too. But... um. George plays on two of us. George plays this riff that is so important to that song. It's so tasty too. It's just it's so great. It just adds this yeah, gallop yeah, yeah. to it. I think he was playing that on the six string uh, guitar. The ba- he was playing the bass line on that. Yeah, you know, it's funny, and I'm sure there's some stuff that we didn't, tons of stuff we didn't see, but. Keith Richards always talks about the art of weaving guitars, him and Ronnie Wood weaving. George and, and, and John do this weaving, and it almost seems they're doing it just kind of by listening to each other, almost by instinct. Okay, he's doing that. Let me try this. You watch those guys play in those parts, especially when they start locking in the songs. Get Back is awesome. They begin to get back where John's tapping. Dun, 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 bow, bow. Like all of that shit, we've heard it for years, but until when we see them play it, it just takes it to a different level how good these guys were as musicians. And once again, the most important thing about any band is, you know, the chemistry between the players. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Well, it's like you said, okay, so here they are. They're playing together. Did you notice not one of them is wearing headphones? Right. I, I don't know. How, how do they hear the vocals? And Paul, every time he does a take, dude, it's perfect. Like, it's just it's a gift. And how about the fact that they that they couldn't keep all the takes because the tape was too expensive, so they I had know, to erase com- some takes. <laughs> I couldn't it's believe like it. Now you can have 50 takes. It's like, well, you can only keep two or three. We'll keep that one, and let's try it again. And I love how right? Paul's so excited. Hey, we have eight tracks to work with. We have actually two tracks for the drums. You can hear him in studio. Yeah, and you know what's a great line? The EMI guy says, why do you need four speakers? You only have two ears. <laughs> that was the best line. Oh, yeah. Once again, just just uh, so many cool scenes and all that sort of thing. Um, and as we start to wind down, another great scene, and, and Charlie brought it up on our text group, uh, at the end of, of, of part one when George leaves and the three guys hug each other very moving yeah that was their only because you know think about twickenham it was there's just people everywhere you have yoko there people walking around michael lindsey movie sets being moved in and it was almost like george leaves and that was the only way the three of them could have like a moment to just themselves i mean we're gonna get through this it was it was poignant because the show the three of them hugging but it was also like it was almost sad like they could not even have a conversation to themselves anymore. Like they didn't want to be recorded. Whatever it was they were discussing, we don't know. But that really was an incredible moment. Watch that scene again. There's, there's another person trying to get in and on the hug. I know. Uh, she's right behind, isn't she? 
Yoko, I was thinking if I wanted to take a screenshot of this, you couldn't because she's right on the side. And you couldn't even edit her out because it would be all on the one side there. You know? Great I point. have that shot. I did too. I did take a screenshot of it. And she's did right you there. Get, did you get one without her in it? No. <laughs> oh, I mean, here it is. Uh, no, look, if, she's literally right there in the shot. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the black death, just this black hat black witchy woman there to me the most poignant moment though and every everybody's yes. mentioned this moment is the paul george leaves john doesn't show up to rehearsal it's the start of part two and paul's famous line and then there were two that's amazing and yeah. first of all it hits because they're they are in the studio with only two of them but obviously it hits on another level for us because they're now the only two living beatles of all these people you know, John's yeah. gone. George is gone. Linda's dead. George Martin is dead. Mal Evans is dead. Billy Preston is dead. So all these years later here in 2021, and then there are two, it's like literally just Paul and Ringo left at this point. But that that's an inc- incredible moment. It's amazing, too, how many of them died fairly young. John, George, Billy Preston, Mal Evans. All these guys died. Like Mal was 40. Billy was 59. George was 59. Brian, Ge- uh, Epstein, was, Brian Epstein was like Epstein, 32, 32 or something. Yeah. 32, yeah. yeah. I just thought about that. And it's like, oh, it's, you know, and then here we got Paul and Ringo, um, you know, 80 and 78. Um, so I guess, I guess the last thing is, what's your kind of final thought on all of this, uh, on, on this documentary? Uh, and my final thought is this: there's two things. Uh, I love the final scene, one of the final scenes in the studio when they're listening to the playback of the rooftop concert and they're all tapping their feet and you see all their faces. And once again, our movie Get Back ends with the four guys knowing they just crushed it and did something very cool. The Beatles live forever in my mind, right? The other thing I want to say is this has existed for 50 years. How much other shit from other bands and other artists is out there that we don't know about? There has to, you know what I mean? Like, it just seems like it just kind of blows my mind, the possibilities of things that we might see coming up. But anyways, that's kind of the two things that I stick with when I watch Get Back. And I've watched it twice, which is 16 hours in the past week. So uh, what do you think, Mike? Well, as far as other bands having this footage, I mean, I, I don't think even the Beatles have that amount of there was this amount of footage because they were filming a documentary for 20 days so uh, you know i don't think they have footage of this doing sergeant pepper i don't think they filmed anything for abbey road i think after this experience they probably locked the doors when they when they made abbey road and that being said uh i know we're talking about the get back movie but the same sessions you know they put out the let it be box set for the 50th anniversary frankly i was really disappointed that they, they didn't have all of these outtakes. So many outtakes. I, mean, I, I think they could still, you know, it seems like they've done everything they could do with all this footage. But I think the one remaining thing, they still could put out a get back soundtrack would have all these songs that were undeveloped. They had that song Commonwealth that they're jamming on. And there's there's a list of dozens of Lennon and McCartney or credited as Lennon, McCartney, Harrison, Starkey compositions that never got developed and never got past the jamming stage that is not in the let it be 50th anniversary box. So personally, as a fan, as much as we have pretty much everything you think you can have, I still think there's one remaining step of doing some sort of audio release with, with this stuff properly mixed. But I, I, my final thought is just, I love that this wipes away that 50 year stigma 
of how horrible the Let It Be sessions were, how miserable they were. They were fighting. They broke up. You know, that's what the Let It Be movie left yes. it as. And and I think it's really, in retrospect, really smart that Paul and Ringo and I guess the estates of, of John and George Livia and Yoko, kept yeah. that out of print for all these years with the intentions of eventually coming back and doing it right. And now here we are 50 years later with, you know, that you we walk away from this movie with such a feeling of love and, and joy between them and optimism and closure. I even. Yeah. It's, right? ab- it's closure, absolutely yeah. closure. Yeah. So that's my final thought is just, I love that Peter Jackson completely reframed history to show it this way. What do you think, Charlie? Yeah, I agree with that completely. I love the fact that the way this movie starts is kind of a, a little, here's, here's the Beatles. Here's how it happened. Here's where it's going, you know. Um, love that aspect of it. I love seeing the guys just together, having a laugh, creating music. They're the architects. Modern music. I mean, we don't exist without the Beatles. I, we say it all the time, but it's the truth, you know. There's no, there's nothing. There's no Rolling Stones without the Beatles, you know. That's just it. So I watched it two times, maybe two and a half times, just. I don't know, man. It just takes me away somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. to another place that I, that I just love. So, again, like Mike said, I'm so glad that we got closure. And uh, that's it, basically. They're, they're, they're the reason why they've always been the number one band for all mm-hmm. of us, you know. It, it really is like at points it feels like a movie that was made, you know, a year ago because it's so well done and so well edited and the quality is so great. <laughs> A you Disney know, movie. Yeah, really. <laughs> so um, thanks to, to, to Peter Jackson and thanks to, to Paul and Ringo and John and George just for allowing us to see the real Beatles, like the most important band in rock and roll history. And we got to see their creative process. Like I said, if you ask me, what's your favorite scene? Watching Paul just strum on that bass and kind of come up with Get Back. I'm sure they edited it down a bit, but if there, if I needed to show you a three minute trailer of get back, that's what I would show. It starts with strumming and then they start doing the, and Ringo's on the drums and John's not there. And then when John gets there, he just sits down, puts on the guitar and just joins right in. Like that gives me goosebumps to the day I die. That's the Beatles, right? That's that's the Beatles, man. That's it. Great work work ethic. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So thank you guys. I appreciate you guys doing this and, uh, one of the, the one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life is get back for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Man. Go see it. Yeah. And you know, Twickenham Studios, you know, that's another thing. Star Wars was made there. Wow. I didn't yeah. know that. The first, yeah. It's like Twickenham Studio. Wow. They had much better results than uh, I bet they ate a lot of toast. They ate a lot of toast. <laughs> <laughs> Harrison Ford was really into toast. Loved it. <laughs> Thank you guys. Thank you guys. Bye, man. Talk to you guys soon. A very big thank you to everybody for coming along here today and making it, well, you know, you made the show anyway. Wonderful audience.